Hello, beautiful patrons out there. Just before we get started with today's episode, it occurs to me that I did not make it very clear in the beginning that there's going to be a B-side to today's episode with Micah Utrecht. So patrons, look out for that in your feeds in the next couple of days. Mike and I are going to be talking about the electoral successes uh, of socialists and progressives in the lovely city of Chicago. Uh, They had a tremendous amount of success in the recent elections. There's going to be runoffs in the beginning of April where some of those successes will be solidified quite likely. And there are going to be a number of open socialists governing that city. And it's just not talked about enough. So I wanted to I wanted to chat with Micah Utrecht, who has played, uh, you know, a pretty important role there, along with Chicago DSA and other socialist and progressive grassroots groups in making that happen. So check that out in a couple of days. Patrons, if you're not a patron of the Dead Pundit Society, you're going to miss out. So head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash or click or whatever you'd like to do to that subscribe button and you'll get access to this B-side as well as our entire back catalog of B-sides. Additionally, for the DPS book club members out there, we had our first book club episode that dropped a few days ago. We discussed Nikos Polonsis's State Power Socialism, particularly the last chapter, which was also an essay in the New Left Review from 1978 called towards a democratic socialism. And as the title would indicate, it is incredibly relevant and topical to today's political context. So DPS book club members, check that out. It's on your feed. Don't miss it. Hit the subscriber only forum as well with your questions and comments. And if any of that sounds good to you, head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and check out the rewards that our patrons enjoy over there. All right. On with the show. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. We're going to be continuing on the theme of the intersection of all of these various movements that led to what we might now call the Bernie Wave. And although the fact that designation carries the name of Bernie Sanders, it clearly far surpasses the man and any type of electoral movement to speak of. It transcends electoralism to get to the kind of broader political from below grassroots uptick and struggle that's been taking place since about 2000 in the anti-globalization struggle going forward into Occupy, a number of successful and militant trade union struggles that have taken place. Since then, moving through Black Lives Matter into the red state strikes of 2018, and we are now winding up the blue state strikes. So we've got a lot here to talk about. Joining me on the program is uh, editor Jacobin, a man that you all mostly be familiar with, if not in voice, but in name. Mikey Utrecht, thanks so much for joining us. Very glad to be here. So what are you doing over there, Jacobin? You took a a year off. you, You headed up to Canada. You did some uh, academic work, which is uh, you produced an article that we're going to be talking about later today. But you're back in the States, not unlike myself, took a little hiatus to Canada to to study with some of those Marxist luminaries they've got up there. That's true. Yeah, that's where they keep them. (laughs) They do. Very jealous of those guys up there. But uh, anybody who can trek across the border to learn from them and come back down here to stoke some socialism, you know, that'd be great. Talk to me about what you're doing now with uh, with Jacobin. I'm the managing editor of Jacobin, so I oversee all of our online coverage. We're doing 
anywhere between like 26 and I don't know, 30 articles a week at this point. So uh, I don't edit every single one of those, but I, I oversee the whole process and, and am responsible for editing a big chunk of them. And that's the, that's the main task at this point. I'm going to be starting a podcast for Jacobin soon, probably within the next month or two. And yeah, that'll, that'll be it, uh, especially going into uh, as we really, the Bernie campaign really kicks off. That'll probably be more than plenty. I'm, I'm also uh, in, in the process of working on a book idea with Megan Day, who is a staff writer nice. for Jacobin that is on the, uh, what, what Bernie Sanders political revolution means and what it, what it looks like beyond just Bernie Sanders trying to win the White House in 2020. So we're in the early stages of that, but yeah, that's the uh, that's 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 the overview. That's that's great stuff. Uh, we really need to. I, I didn't know you start a podcast. I didn't know you were going to be my competition. So uh, well, I, show, I guess shows I'm canceled. Breaking. Shows off. We got to uh, <laughs> cut it. Cut. Actually, I'm looking at my uh, invisible producer over here. Cut it. Cut the cut the feed. Well, I guess I haven't told anybody this. Uh, so this is a, sort of the announcement. Oh, I got it. I got the exclusive. Breaking I'll news. keep you exactly. This is fine. <laughs> I don't get to break stories very often. I'm just one fucking guy here. I don't have a massive newsroom, you know, working for me. So this is you heard it here first, folks. Breaking news. Micah Utrecht will have a podcast with Jacobin. Let's talk a little bit more about Jacobin. You guys, you know, when you, you know, sometimes the, the worst thing about being the best is being the best or the biggest or the largest or the most dominant in any kind of field or industry. And I think Jacobin definitely holds that title in terms of the left media sector in the United yeah, States. Although, let me just say, Adam, you remember somebody once said about Michael Harrington that he was the most famous socialist in America. And William F. Buckley then responded, <laughs> being the most famous socialist in America is like being the tallest building in Topeka, Kansas. So, <laughs> no shade to, to Topeka, Kansas, but uh, we're still we're still operating a pretty small ball here. I got you've got you've got another exclusive here, another first anyway. It's the first time anybody has ever uh, cited something from William F. Buckley in an approving <laughs> fashion. So, uh, yeah, the man was an abysmal racist. We'll just round that out a little bit. Uh, but you're not wrong. Uh, you're not wrong. But again, come on, you're not. You guys aren't. You know, this is kind of why people love you and love to hate you because you guys are so damn humble. You know, you guys have have really cracked into the mainstream in a big way, and I, I particularly like the way that you're now in dialogue with some of the leading lights in the kind of progressive, kind of sort of center left liberal sphere. You know, you had a nice chat uh, featuring Matt Iglesias, which was a guy who who was not a yeah. You know, I, I don't I don't think it's a stretch to say many of us were not a big fan of Matty during the 2016 primary. He wasn't always the most fair to Bernie Sanders in, in many, many senses, but he's coming around, which really speaks to the strength of what we're doing here, I think, as principled socialists in the media sector. And, you know, Jacobin holds a lot of um, responsibility for that. So talk to me about what it's like to be the big man on campus, so to speak. I mean, what are you guys shooting for now? What kind of movement are you trying to contribute to? What kind of, uh, you know, talk to me about the fractiousness of, of the left, Right now, it seems to be converging around a sort of broad based democratic socialist uh, wave inspired by the Bernie movement, you know, labor, all of these kind of uh, you know, movements that are coming together. But but how do you how are you guys envisioning this? What's your five year plan? Well, uh, for the, you know, Bhaskar Sankara probably has a, a much more fleshed out uh, five year plan than I do in my mind. But, you know, generally the hope is to do what I think we've had some uh, modest success in, in doing over the last couple of years, which is 
helping bring socialist ideas from the margins into the mainstream. Though I guess that's the first thing is just sort of like infusing the mainstream political discourse with socialist ideas as a as a, a pole of uh, attraction, as a, as, a, as a legitimate pole of, of the discourse and, and uh, to help, you know, pull things in that direction. And of course, we're not single-handedly responsible for that by any means, but I do feel pretty proud of the role that we've played in helping make that happen. I mean, you know, our articles getting cited in, you know, mainstream publications and, yeah, someone like Matt Iglesias is willing to engage with us or or others, even if it's just to uh, denounce us. You know, Kevin Kevin Williamson in the National Review <laughs> cited one of our articles yesterday. So, you know, that's how you know we've made it. We've yeah, got, well, uh, uh, where's, where's the National Review now compared to Jacobin, you know, yeah. uh, budget and <laughs> circulation-wise? Yeah. Anyway. Right. Although I will say that National Review, obviously not politically, but in terms of the role that they had on the right in sure. the uh, second half of the 20th century, I mean, that's, that's sort of a model in some ways for us, although on the, the mirror opposite of politics, of course. But, you know, yeah, they, right. they, they took their ideas from, from margin to mainstream. It helped, of course, that they were, uh, had an incredibly reactionary, disgusting agenda that they were carrying out. Well, and backed by billionaires, of course. Exactly. You know, backed by billionaires, right. Yeah, that's the one thing that Jacobin still hasn't uh, <laughs> tracked down yet. Despite what uh, some people on the internet seem to think, we don't get checks from either the CIA or, or Putin. If if they are if they are funding us, then I don't know about it. I, they're really they're they're the pinch and pennies. They need to really pony up some of that. Yeah, you, real you, you guys don't get money. that Tom Steyer money because I thought it's coming <laughs> through my door. It's it's fantastic. It's <laughs> I'm waiting for it. I got the so, Lambo outside. It's, it's great. <laughs> so yeah, talk to me more about that plan then. Yes, right. We're just waiting for it. But uh, so there's, you know, the attempt to put socialist ideas in the mainstream. But then I also think, you know, we, we don't have ex- we don't have exactly a line. I mean, the way that Bosker has described it is we're sort of a box publication. I mean, we don't have an answer to every political question that's out there that we, we demand that all our, our writers hew to. But we have a kind of uh, we, 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 uh, a broad box within which we host debates on the left. And so Obviously, we want to be a resource to people on the left, uh, you know, obviously in the U.S., members of the Democratic Socialists of America. That's an audience that I think about a lot when we're putting stuff out. You know, what what uh, people's, you know, what what their take on, I don't know, the issue du jour, like something like Alain, Representative Alain Omar and the tactics that she's under. I'm just thinking of that because that's in the news right now. From hot takey, you know, stuff that's in the news to questions of, labor strategy to, you know, where should we, what, how should we think about the conflict in Venezuela? I mean, all of these things I think about with this newly politicized and newly radicalized audience of people in the U.S. Um, that is most clearly seen in the rise of the Democratic Socialists of America. We, we think about them, um, but also, yeah, to have this broader uh, aim to reach people with radical ideas in, uh, you know, plain, easy to understand English, you know, ideas that that you know i think as as bosker has described before a precocious high schooler could uh, wrap their <laughs> mind around and uh you know understand what the radical critique is and understand yeah. like there is this thing called capitalism and it, it acts in this way on people and it's bad and we want to fight it and all of that um so i i, I feel you know very good about our contribution it's it's modest uh but it is an, an important one yeah, it's meaningful. Uh, Baskar's use of precocious is a, is a tell that he's been reading a lot of Perry Anderson, which is not uh, easy language uh, to understand. So anyway, true. Uh, 
I digress. I'm glad you guys are doing it. Uh, I take a much more pointed approach here at DPS. Uh, yeah, I'm aware and, of that. <laughs> and in, large, in, in large part because I will say it's it's a, it's not just a you know I'm not just a sort of a, you know throwing shit at a wall. I think you know I'm able and other outlets uh, like my own are able to do that because you guys cover the bases, right? I mean, there has to be a larger ecosystem in place so that people can make pointed, you know, specific strategic contributions in the midst of a, a kind of a broader foundation that you guys are laying uh, quite, uh, you know, adeptly. And, I, you know, I, I myself appreciate that. I wouldn't be able to do what I do without it. Uh, there wouldn't be a broader context. Uh, so anyway, I got to talk to you. Why are you guys fucking up on Venezuela? Because this fuck, I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> you guys have been getting a lot of shit lately. And again, like, you know, I always I always stand for Jacobin because, you know, it's hard to be the big man on campus and you guys are doing really important work. And none of this, I'm just going to say it because you won't, but none of this would be happening in, in quite the way that it's unfolding without the foundation that, that, that Jacobin laid out. But there are broader foundations to any left, left upsurge. And that's a good transition to talking about uh, the main topic of today's show, which is an article that, that just came out hot off the press, the academic press, that is, which is probably not so hot. <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably the sixth person to read it at this yeah, point. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So I, you know, I, I stumbled across it on social media and I thought, hey, this is right up our alley and I'm going to be talking to Micah pretty soon. And I read it and I thought, oh, my God, this is a fantastic uh, follow up to my conversation with Hillary Wainwright from a couple of weeks ago. You and Barry Eidlin, who you, you studied with, uh, studied under. Um, you did your master's degree with under him, if I'm not mistaken. We can talk about that in just a moment. Have written a new uh, piece. It's called U.S. Union Revitalization and the Missing Militant Minority. Talk to me a little bit about your relationship with Barry Eidlin. Uh, he's a fantastic uh, labor-oriented you know, oriented sociologist up there in Canada. And uh, how, how you sort of first conceptualized this work. I suspect it was a, a part of your, your the research you did under him. Yeah, that's right. This is my master's paper uh, for this master's program in sociology that I did at McGill University. Barry's an assistant professor there. And if people aren't familiar with him, you should check out his work. Uh, he just came out with a book not long ago called uh, Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada, which is an excellent comparative study of, of yeah. labor in the U.S. and Canada. And, and also explores lots of issues that your listeners would be interested in, in digging into but um and barry he's a sociologist but he comes from the labor movement he worked for many years for teamsters for a democratic union and was in the sort of uh, labor notes like left labor milieu for many years um and he's a regular contributor to jacobin which is how i first met him and how he convinced me to come up to canada i was interacting with him in that way but um yeah we were we were you know hope wanting to do some research into the 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 you know, this question of what, how labor revitalization does and does not happen, uh, especially what got us thinking about these things was the, as I mentioned, the the uh, the milieu of labor notes and Teamsters for Democratic Union and and the, this segment of the American labor movement that is focused on pushing a militant democratic unionism, um, and we just wanted to do some deeper thinking about what that you know, what, what is the importance of this milieu? How, do, what is the role that they play in, in stoking labor militancy in the country? And so this article is a reflection of that thinking. Right. So you, you go back and you sort of excavate the, the kind of historical legacies and trajectories of this militant minority as they developed, um, even in the 19 teens and twenties prior to, you know, the legalization of a lot of their activity 
And you and Barry are able to demonstrate that a lot of the strategies that have been used in the last 75 years, to very little effect, have it exactly backwards, that they mistake cause for effect. And you break down three of the the approaches, which I think have a role to play, and, and you guys uh, are, are, are definitely um, you know not totally scratching these uh, these approaches, but but they have their 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 shortcomings and pitfalls, as Jane McAlevey and many others have outlined over the past couple of years. But you, you build on that work. So the first one is policy fixes, the second one is uh, technical fixes, and then last we lastly we have political fixes. Let's go through these one by one and just kind of define for the listeners what each one of the uh, each one of them are, and uh, how how these approaches get things uh, either wrong or maybe even uh, you know totally ass backwards, as they say. Let's start with policy fixes. What are those? Yeah. So you you said you know do they get it wrong or are they ass backwards? I think uh, you know you can you can be ass backwards or just backwards <laughs> on a question, but not be wrong. And I think that sure. that applies to each the three of these, because uh, what they're describing is it's not wrong that to have these three things would be good. What's wrong is the, how we get them, if that makes sense. So maybe that'll make more sense once I explain what I'm talking about. So uh, policy fixes uh, related to political fixes, but policy fixes is uh, the argument, which is of course true about the, nature of labor law in the United States, that it's the most restrictive pro-employer labor law uh, in the wealthy world. And so in order to have labor revitalization, the argument goes, you need to change these laws. Most recently, the way that that played out was for the Employee Free Choice Act under President uh, Obama, or, or then candidate Obama in the lead up to 2008. Uh, th- this would have been a policy fix that would have made it much easier for U.S. workers to join unions. And I think a lot of people in the labor movement were ha- really had their hopes riding on the passage of that act. And, and if Obama passed it upon taking office, he uh, would help affect a sea change in, in, in labor's fortunes. Yeah, talk to um, us about that act, because some of, some of us are, are too young or maybe uh, too green in terms of our socialist uh, history to, to have a whole lot of experience with that. What would that have accomplished? Right. So currently, the, the principal way that you organize a union in the United States is that you and the coworkers organize, get together, you get together with a union, and uh, you decide you want a union. And so you call for a union election. And then if the majority of your coworkers vote yes uh, in a secret ballot election for the union, you get the union, which sounds pretty straightforward and democratic and all that stuff. Uh, but of course, the American workplace is not a democracy. <laughs> it is not a normal, you know, there's, there's, yeah. it's not like you're making these decisions outside of the context of the uh, petty dictator, which is your boss, uh, who has all kinds of control of you, which incidentally, uh, Barry and I also wrote an article about uh, the problem of workplace democracy for New Labor Forum, which uh, maybe the listeners might be interested in. So yeah, so when workers are making, are, are, are you know, saying they want a union, uh, their boss has all of these opportunities uh, to uh, scare the hell out of them and to discourage them from joining the union, right? So there's a multi-billion dollar annual industry on union avoidance, union busting lawyers, people who, you know, will come uh, and you know, do captive audience meetings with groups of workers and, you know, say everything from, you know, oh, the union's going to break up our, our family that we have here to threaten to close down uh, the plant or the workplace. Say, oh, a union will be too expensive and we won't be able to keep this 
this workplace open anymore, divide workers in whatever ways possible, promote, you know, workplace leaders to try to get them out of the bargaining unit, all kinds of, of, uh, as well as, of course, just fire workers outright for, you know, uh, bullshit reasons that, uh, you know, they, they say that somebody was 20 seconds late to punching in one day. And if that was a union leader, they have an excuse to fire them. So the uh, Employee Free Choice Act would have made it so that rather than uh, doing that secret ballot election, which uh, there are all kinds of opportunities for bosses to intervene and to, and to scare workers into not organizing a union, uh, what would be required to form a union would be that the majority of workers in a workplace would sign a card. Uh, that's why it's called card check and would have made it so that they could uh, join a union. That's one of the, the main feature of, of that proposed legislation. But of course, it never ended up happening under President Obama. But that's just one proposed policy fix of, of many that has to do with changing like labor policy questions in the U.S. And as I said, of course, anybody who uh, believes in a strong labor movement believes that that would be a good thing to get. But to focus on that is not the way that we're arguing in this article, people should be going about making change with the labor movement, which I'll explain after I get through these three. So the other one, the second one is technical fixes. This is something, if, if people read Jane McAlevey's most recent book, she talks a lot about this, the, the emphasis on things like strategic corporate research, where, you know, oh, we say that the workplace and, and companies in the 21st century are more complicated than they've ever been before. And we need, you can't just focus on one given workplace because that workplace is embedded in a whole chain of international supply chains and finance and all this stuff. And so uh, unions have in the, in the 21st century, especially turned to trying to strategize uh, what, what McAlevey calls like the air war, like how you can fight the company from above. So maybe you can figure out some way to, to, to screw with their business in a foreign market someplace where they're trying to expand. Or maybe you can pressure this supplier who, uh, ha, you know, they're, they're vulnerable to public pressure in some way. Right, it, it's investment it, campaigns. They, they yeah, bring in these consultants right. who promise the world and kind of try to play three-dimensional chess to justify their enormous price tags. But it's all it all comes down to the fact that they're pulling the center of gravity away from the shop floor. Well, you're right. So that's, that's the critique. And again, I don't want to say that, you know, there's no place for strategic corporate research. I mean, there, there, there definitely is, uh, you know, it's true that, (laughs) that there are all these issues with, uh, the, the 21st century workplace and supply chains and all that. Uh, but yeah, the critique is that if you put all your eggs in that basket, you're getting further and further away from the rank and file level. Um, and then the last fix that we say is wrong is related to the policy fixes, but it is a political one, which is, of course, the, the American labor movement's uh, long and uh, pretty unfruitful history in trying to elect politicians, especially Democrats, who can carry out a pro-labor agenda. And, you know, again, there it would be nice to have some people who are, don't have their boot on the neck of the, the American working class legislatively. Um, but our argument about, about the political fixes and then also about, about policy and technical fixes is that the emphasis is wrong, that essentially these are elite-led uh, or, or elite-focused models of making political change happen. And where people who want to see union revitalization should be focusing their efforts is on uh, the rank-and-file level, that the change has to come uh, from you know, the, the shop floor itself. And, and that, that change comes from the bottom 
through rank and file activity, which leads to what our you know, our, the, our article is about, which is the, the role of a militant minority in, in that rank and file activity. Right. And so in a sense, you're building quite consciously on the work of Jane McAlevey, who's trying to argue for a movement away from the mobilizing model to organizing or what she calls deep organizing. And so you're focusing on the agents, the actual agents who do the deep organizing in, in a way. It's really kind of advancing that uh, the ball down the court in a really productive way. Um, you know, Hillary Wainwright characterizes this in, in a quite similar fashion. Uh, she sort of criticizes what she calls the old left and the strategy of mobilizing, you know, these kind of hordes of, of new voters and new activists in various directions. Uh, but what we need to do, they argue, and, and you argue as well, is, is to, uh, you know, in, in, enhance the capacities and the self-activity of, of, of the masses. And so you go back in, into history and, and look at how those things kind of developed organically, this militant mi- minority and how they, they created – what others have called cultures of solidarity in this process. Uh, so let's go back there. Let's let's go back to history. Take us way back. Where did all of this start? Last uptick. Yeah. So in general, this discussion of the militant minority, the the you know the militant minority is this layer of workers uh, in the labor movement uh, in unions uh, that play these key roles in unions. Uh, they, they sort of set the help set the agenda. For what unions are going to be fighting for, they're often uh, self-consciously political. Like uh, you know, and, uh, our focus in this paper is on the role of radical leftists uh, within this militant minority, and we, I mean, we, we, in the history that we go into in the paper, we talk about what you know socialists and, and communist party members and other kinds of radicals did in their given workplaces. And the reason why, you know, I have a definition uh, in, the, in the beginning of the paper uh, is that the militant minority is that segment that, that endeavored to weld their workmates and neighbors into a self-aware and purposeful working class. That's from David Montgomery, the famous labor historian, as well as Charlie Post in Jacobin, who says that the militant minority was a layer of workers with a vision of, and a strategy for how to organize, fight, and win that really focused on, on this class struggle unionism, so not not just uh, you know organizing to win something for themselves, but seeing class struggle, fighting the boss, and and fighting in a in a, in a broad way for sort of with communities and, and and fighting for you know for broad working class demands as a central part of that that militant minority. And so yeah, so we we talk about the contributions of communists and socialists and Trotskyists and, and anarchists and and others that have that you know especially in the twentieth century. Uh, played the key role in uh, all kinds of unions, from uh, meatpackers union to the Teamsters in the 30s and 40s, uh, to the internet, the longshore workers in San Francisco, and all of these places uh, in places that historically had some of the most uh, inspiring and successful militant unionism. It was radicals of one stripe or another who were playing those key roles. And so the rest of the paper sort of talks about what those key roles were and, 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 and why it took that self-conscious leftist layer in the workplace specifically, not just like radicals who said that they supported what was going on, you know, outside and maybe showed up to a, a, a picket or something, but who, who were on the shop floor as rank and filers playing key roles in those struggles. Right. To what extent 
do you conscientiously do you do you consciously bend the stick in the direction of the self activity of workers in a kind of almost quasi volunteerist way here because I think it's a very useful strategy but what I want to do towards the end of our chat here is to think about bending the stick back in the other direction to try to encompass these other three dimensions that get it not so much wrong as you rightfully sort of uh, point to but backwards so how do we integrate this kind of more volunteerist, mili- militant approach at the point of production in the workplace, the kind of self-activity of this militant minority with that kind of larger or- organic multifaceted approach? Because one of the ways in which uh, I had Eric Blanc on the show a couple of weeks ago and we talked about this uptick and struggle uh, among the teachers and the red state strikes and now the blue city strikes and, and we got some criticism from the, the modern day IWW types out there. They claimed that we were attributing way too much causation here to the Bernie Sanders wave. And uh, I don't think that was a fair characterization, but I see where that particular lens, where you're bending the stick pretty far in the direction of this kind of uh, voluntaristic militant you know, minority. I could see where emphasizing the Bernie wave in the way that, that I have on this show could seem either illegitimate or overstating the case. How do you, how do you, uh, you know, this is going outside the bounds of what you argue here in the paper, but how do you sort of envision the rise of this militant minority, particularly in the 1930s with the rise of the New Deal, um, alongside these other uh, aspects of struggle that you point to? Well, just to the, to the, the question of the role of the Bernie campaign first, I think that it's undeniable that the Bernie Sanders campaign, I mean, people, everyone acknowledges, for example, that Bernie's campaign helped lead to the explosion in interest in socialism in the United States, uh, right? Like the DSA would not have exploded the membership if it wasn't for Bernie's campaign. And I think that's true of some of the contemporary militant explosions too, um, not directly, right? It, but there is this sort of just injection of, of a kind of broad class consciousness into everybody in American society. And in some cases uh, that is manifesting as teachers being willing to take militant action to go on strike and to talk about austerity and, and uh, you know, not being paid enough to live on and, and budget cuts and how, you know, crumbling conditions in their classrooms. While um, you know, Eric Blanc has written a lot about this narrative of like teachers versus billionaires, Right. Um, you know, the, the strikes are being explicitly framed that way in places like Oakland and Los Angeles. Um, so I think, of, of course, you don't want to just say that, that Bernie sort of like brought this this down from above. Uh, right, I, sure, I, sure. I would not want to order that. But, but there is clearly Bumbling stumble. disheveled man sort of, you know, wakes up every day <laughs> and, you know, and class struggle just emanates out of his pores you right, know, each morning exactly. or something, right? <laughs> but but there is it is clear that there that he is playing some role in, in making that happen. And, and just as an aside, I mean, as a, a socialist and as a socialist who wants to see labor revitalization and all, and, and and bottom up activity, I that's part of the reason for support, supporting Bernie's campaign is because I, I believe that it has that potential that we've already seen so far to to see you know more explosions of militancy by rank and file workers from. Uh, from across the country, so so that's the 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 hope there. Um, and uh, you know, your question about volunteerism—I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're getting at, but but I think it's a good it's a good one. I mean, it is a voluntarist sort of contention that like 
it is the the self-conscious activity of radicals in workplaces that can make the difference that has made the difference historically in many uh, industries and contemporarily has made uh, the difference in like organizing the you know organic militant energy in a in a useful direction and consolidating gains that can be made from taking action like wildcat strikes but you know i get into this history i mean i talk for example in the paper about the uh, longshore workers in san francisco and in the bay area in the 30s and the um it was a relatively small number. I think I said, uh, I, I cited a, a book by um, Michael Kimmeldorf uh, that said like 10 or 15 radicals uh, who are longshore workers first came together to have a kind of study group to, to, to push for a, a different kind of unionism on the docks in California and uh, in the Bay Area. And over the course of just a few years, that small core of people ended up being the the nucleus of one of the most militant and successful unions in American in the 20th century American labor history. So there, and, and likewise, con- contemporarily, I mean, Eric Blanc has written about the role th- the, of a militant minority in a place like West Virginia, where it was teachers who came together uh, initially around the Bernie Sanders campaign and then joined BSA uh, and then played this key leadership role uh, in uh, the West Virginia strike, the one that happened last year, as well as the one that took place this year against some anti-teacher legislation. So, um, you know, the argument is not that like radicals will, you know, can accomplish everything alone, of course, that we need to chalk up all of these victories to just radicals being there and, and leading everything, you know, themselves. That's not the argument. The argument is that at times, of of militant organic working class upsurge radicals have a very key role to play uh to you know pushing though that that militant energy among uh, rank and file workers as far as it can go yeah i mean uh, having been involved in a militant strike myself and, and, and sort of read and seen many uh even the last several years which is that's pretty fucking awesome if i, if I do say so myself that we have that uh, ability to to look at contemporary you know events uh, that hasn't been the case for socialists in the last couple of decades. We're quite lucky, but you see how you know a couple of well-placed individuals can really play a decisive role. The question being for me is what I'm curious about, and maybe we can kind of try to thread this needle talking through the history as well as our present conjuncture here today, is that you know to what extent does that voluntaristic necessity, that kind of uh, that kind of almost like quasi-Leninist understanding of the necessity for humans to intervene? In, in opportune moments to kind of shift the balance, right? Uh, Lenin talks quite a, a lot about that. Uh, you know, I think Lars Lee has characterized him as, as kind of having this sort of like a, a, I don't know, a heroic man Marxism or something to that effect is how he characterized it. And I think that's quite right in, in the fact that people can intervene and they can make very decisive uh, they can take very decisive action that makes all the difference. But there's a, there's a kind of structuration that's going on behind the scenes, right, that enables that kind of activity to have the effect that it does, right? Why were those 10 longshoremen that formed that study group so successful when a dozen other guys across the country, you know, eventually got tired of looking at each other and stopped meeting and, you know, their struggle went nowhere? I guess that's the kind of questions that, that uh, we should think through and, and having a well-rounded uh, discussion about this. And, um, right. you know, your piece really contributes to that quite a bit. Um, yeah. So just to be clear, I mean, it's not that 
the 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 larger structural questions don't matter of course i would never argue that as a as a as a good marxist um that that of course the structural questions are are the are the foundation for everything that the that the individuals are are capable of doing but you know it, it so people should wrestle with those questions of of structure and you know figure out what the constraints on them are of uh you know the political situation the economic situation all that but when the structural conditions uh, do, you know, allow for some kind of opening, when that opening happens, radicals have uh, uh, really important uh, roles to play. I guess is the yeah, is the right, argument that, right. that, that 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 despite all of the uh, the structural constraints, or or you, you know what you thought were ironclad structural constraints throughout history will surprise you when when they uh, show that actually they were not uh, as ironclad as you thought they might have been and in that moment that is when radicals have a, a an enormous role to play so i guess in that sense that is a kind of leninist argument uh, just that there are these sort of ruptural moments in history and and that that is when ra- and so then at that point it's like where are radicals positioned to play uh, a role in that are, are they in, in the case of workplace militancy is it like are you embedded in workplaces are you trusted by your coworkers? do you have experiences in organizing uh around you know experiences all, all kinds of enough background experience and and are you placed well enough to be able to then seize that moment and and, and wring as much out of it as is possible yeah right right and it has a kind of um it has a synergistic effect because those openings produce concerted collective action, which then force new crises, which is, you know, I think Jane McAlevey's most important contribution in her recent work is to suggest that, you know, she, she said on my show about two years ago that, you know, the problem with all of these academics is they've been studying for decades about why capitalism is so, you know, in, is so entrenched about why you can't beat it. You know, we've just been we, we crafted this concept, neoliberalism, to explain why workers can't win. And she says that, in fact, you know, workers can win if we struggle and fight in, this, in, in the right way and we force a certain kind of crisis. And so the, the action of, you know, say the West Virginia teachers and these other red states and in the blue states as well have forced a certain kind of crisis that will enable, you know, enhanced kind of struggle and, and the creation of further capacity. So there's this, this kind of, um, yeah, this, this, this mutually beneficial effect of kind of like, uh, you know, structure and agency that kind of wheels back and forth. Uh, you know, in, into the present, which is a really, um, we seem to be in one of those feedback loops right now, which I think is why we're all kind of a little bit, you know, giddy, you know, on the inside, whether or not we want to admit it about the prospects for the next 10 years, wouldn't you say? Oh, well, I, I will fully admit to being uh, giddy uh, very, <laughs> very frequently. Um, I mean, you know, the, the teacher strike wave is the most obvious reason for for the giddiness. And, you know, again, it's like, it, like the Bernie campaign, it, it is. It's like you said that that Jane had, had argued that among us, sort of professional political prognosticators, who would have predicted such a thing? We all would have said that you know, in the case of the teacher strike wave, the American working class is too beaten down, and and we would ha- we would ha- we would be able to list out the million reasons why they would never <laughs> take these kinds of actions, and then all of a sudden the action happens. And likewise with Bernie, it's like. We could tell you all the reasons why Americans don't embrace social democratic policies until all of a sudden one day they actually are embracing social democratic policies, you know? So it's, it's quite a time to be a, a radical. It's, uh, I, I, I don't know, you know, if you've got particularly young people 
uh, like, you know, early 20s uh, listeners to the show. But like, I, I, I often wonder if the people of that age uh, coming, you know, into political consciousness right now realize just how unique of a moment this is. If they think it's going to be like this forever. I'm like, oh, yeah. They're, 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 David, like, no. they're David after dentist, Micah. Yeah, David yeah, after exactly. dentist. They're like, it's going to be like this forever. You know, they really do believe it. You can, who could blame them? Because, I mean, I wake up yeah. some days and have to pinch myself. And I talked to Matt Carp at length about this, you know, about how, how like, you know, the, the, the year two, 2016 operates as this kind of like veil over our memories that prevents us from seeing, you know, what, what came before it. And it can be really clarifying to, to take a trip back into the, you know, memory lane, uh, down memory lane rather. Um, so let's talk about, let's, let's finish up. I, I kind of brought us off topic a little bit, uh, very, very much on topic, but away from the, the argument in the, in the paper. Let's get back to that. Cause there, there's some really key lessons that I want to draw out here. I have, an, I have a lot of, uh, trade union militants and radicals, uh, in my audience. And, um, I'm really excited to kind of talk more practically about, uh, the role that they can play in their workplaces and in, in their locals. You talk about four things that the militant minority did and can do in the present. The, the, let's see. The first one is ideology and the militant minority. So they can kind of um, promote a certain kind of militant dynamic ideology in the workplace and in broader society. Let's start there or, or, and unpack, yeah. unpack the rest of those four because surely we don't stop at ideology, right? Well, yeah. I, the, the argument uh, – the first one is that um, – the radical ideology infused their union activity with militancy, with dynamism, uh, that, you know, this is part of what is central to the, the class struggle perspective that the, these uh, radicals brought to their work as part of the militant minority that, that, yeah, that, that being a socialist meant, you know, the boss is my enemy. And so I'm going to, on the job, I'm going to be fighting the boss. That's, that's what uh, that's what we're <laughs> that's what we do as as radicals. Um, so there's that question. Uh, the the second thing that we cite is is what the militant minority was about was that they were the uh, labor's most seasoned and dedicated organizers. Which especially in the in the periods that I'm talking about in the paper, like in the, you know the the 20s and 30s and 40s, in this era where industrial unionism is not yet established. I mean, there are people who are willing to fight, who are, who are pissed off about their their uh, conditions at work, but they're not people who have particular uh, political organizing background for the most part. And so radicals can bring that to the workplace. They The third thing that we cite is that they serve as a link between workplace and community struggles. This has become particularly important these days around the teacher strikes, right? Like this is the principal site uh, a principal source of teachers unions power in that uh, the the ties that teachers unions have been able to make between the workplace and community but even in the period that i'm talking about in uh, the the 20s and 30s and 40s uh these radicals often had these ties uh with communities that served their struggle even if they weren't teachers even if they were something like meat plant uh, meat packing workers like they having those ties to, to the community uh, really spread uh, the the importance of, of their union organizing uh, far and wide and, and brought them support from all kinds of quarters. Um, the fourth one is that they were closely involved in the day-to-day activities of their unions. I mean, they were, they were the ones who not just had the dedication and the experience that I talked about, but they stayed deeply involved in what the union was doing day-to-day. Uh, and then they served as this connective tissue between the union's rank and file to leadership. Um, and that could go, you know, 
multiple ways. If the if the union leadership was conservative uh, and and didn't want to see that kind of class struggle, uh, didn't want to see the union as a vehicle for that kind of class struggle, that they could sort of uh, help lead that that fight against what the leaders were doing. But also, if there had more uh, leadership that was that was amenable to that kind of class struggle unionism. Uh, they they provided that connective tissue down to the rank and file to have you know flowing between uh, what was happening at the rank and file level and what was what was going on in leaders and so these are uh, key tasks that these radicals played at the period that I'm that I'm referring to and the argument of course is that radicals could play that role today if radicals take up the the role of the militant minority again today in the American workplace. Right. And so, I mean, people have written quite a bit at length about how these various factors are missing, right? About how we're doing it wrong. And uh, your paper really kind of, again, it, it identifies an agent and an actor and then uh, goes back into history to look at how these things would have developed uh, previously. And of course, these these four uh, elements have a very sort of organic, you know, they, they're organically connected in the way they sort of work together. Um, anybody who has ever tried to do any agitation or organizing in a local or at a workplace uh, as an outsider, <laughs> okay, right. as a as a brand new fresh face trying to get the uh, pass out flyers and win the right. you know the <laughs> the trust of these workers, uh, they're like, who the who the fuck are you? Why should yeah. I listen to you? Why should I trust you? You know, I, I've known my boss, my manager, for ten years now. Yeah, exactly. You just roll up in here and you tell me that my boss is a bad guy. I don't believe you. You know, uh, so this stuff is this this stuff is so incredibly important and, and powerful. Um, and know, can I just say, just yeah, to, uh, the we're, just to kind of fast forward in the paper. I mean, I'm talking about all this stuff historically in the American labor movement, but I'm part of the reason I wanted to write it is because I think there are lessons for today's radicals. You know, people in the 21st century who are becoming really politicized and who. You know, I think there's like a large number, for example, of young DSA members who are like unions. Yeah, okay, I'm a socialist and I know the unions are really good. I know that they're great. They might not even fully understand what unions do, but they're like, yeah, I'm pro-union. But they don't see themselves as people who could, you know, maybe not even be a union. Like, oh, that unions, they're good, but they're for some other kind of like more authentic working class somewhere else. Right. Right. Uh, right. And, and my my role as a socialist is to support them in whatever way that means. Um, But they don't see themselves as people who could be playing key roles in unions today. And so um, part of the argument in the paper, especially in the conclusion is that uh, radicals could uh, take up that role, especially in that today, we obviously are living in a time of extreme downward mobility for a lot of people who have a middle class or upper middle class background who maybe in previous generations would have gone into good paying professional jobs or had, or would have gone off to do um, PhDs and would have been, you know, given a, a, a tenure track position somewhere. Um, you know, obviously those days are, are, are not, those are behind us. Like it, even people who didn't grow up working class are being, proletarianized and so um you you know you don't have to be that you don't have you're it's not this is not an argument for some like as i said more authentic working class like 
industrial worker who you know covered in grease somewhere yeah, like to say like, <laughs> you got to be covered in dust and grease right you know <laughs> exactly. and you gotta you gotta have chewing tobacco in your back pocket or whatever i think you know your point is is well taken in terms of people being downwardly mobile but it's also a structural feature as you well know right it, entire sectors are being proletarianized and so you look at people who are software engineers for example would have right. been like easily white collar 10 years ago are now being proletarianized in terms of their work is being, um, you know, it's being, it's being automated in term, you know, and people are turning into kind of, you know, um, consultant roles and, um, you know, third party, you know, employees who have no rights, uh, or, you know, in, in the way that things go. And so sectors that previously would never have dreamed of being involved in a unionization drive or a unionizing drive, you know, for example, are, are now, are now in the midst of kind of trying to hammer out what does that look like? What does it look like to get a bunch of nerdy coders, you know, a right. bunch of lanyard wearing DSA members who are coders, who, by the way, are heavily in my audience and I love you all. Uh, <laughs> but what does it look like to get a bunch of nerds together in a room and talk about uh, organizing when half of them went to MIT for fuck's sake? Yeah, or I was I was editing a piece earlier that, uh, you know, Megan Day, our staff writer, did an interview with the woman who uh, is a museum worker in New York city. And you think it's like a highbrow yeah. museum in yeah. Manhattan, but she was talking about how actually, even as a museum worker in this highbrow art world, uh, they're not paid very much. You know, yeah. uh, people are not, you know, there's this assumption that everybody who works there is like some, uh, rich or some kid with a trust fund or something. Uh, but totally. she's like, no, that is not the case. Uh, and our conditions are terrible. And so, you know, she where she was in in she didn't go off to go work in an auto plant or something she was in uh, a museum in manhattan and she said my conditions at my workplace suck and she organized with her coworkers to form a union at this museum that she worked at so yeah. Yeah, she's um, probably got six figures in student debt uh, yeah, exactly. with her art history uh, ma from nyu or what have you yeah, as well exactly. you know, to make matters worse right right so, so again, this is just an argument that, I mean, we, we can talk about what the strategic industries are in the American economy today, and we get into that at the end of the article. We talk about logistics sector and healthcare and public education, um, and it would be good for radicals to play key roles specifically in those sectors, but it's also an argument for radicals to think about their own workplaces where they are and, and you know, seize opportunities to organize there. So you bend the stick uh, quite productively and you know fruitfully, I think um, you know for sure in this article. Let's bend it back uh, in the last in the last little bit, last ten minutes here, because we're in the midst of this kind of multi pronged attack on capitalism uh, in, in a progressive and socialist direction, where we have and we're building strength and capacities in all sectors of society. So let's let's bring it all home together here. What would if if we have this kind of bottom up? militant minority driven workplace oriented um you know struggle in place what would it then look like to 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 reintegrate these other three sectors that you talk about in the opening uh, of the paper what would it look like to have a policy fix a technical fix and a political fix in the midst of this bottom up trade union uh, frenzy of militant activity well, that's a good question. It's it's hard to quite know what the answer is. I mean, if you think about the New Deal era, for example, I mean the the the, the pro worker policies, both the social democratic policies as well as just the basic laws about collective bargaining that came out of the New Deal era, came be, largely because there were these upsurges happening. 
Um, I think about, for example, like West Virginia, like the state legislature in West Virginia, as, as far as I know, is con- completely controlled by Republicans who are, who are, you know, stringent enemies of working people. Uh, but because West Virginia teachers engage in this militant wildcat strike, uh, not once, but twice, uh, you know, the, the most recent one against this anti-teacher bill, those Republicans were freaking out. Uh, it, it was the, the engagement in that, in militant struggle on the, in the job and, and, and workers being willing to take industrial action like they did that, that led to these legislators who were, again, dire enemies of working people, uh, all of a sudden finding, finding it within them that maybe they should give these teachers what they wanted. So, um, you know, those, those questions will, will be answered, I think, uh, as a result of the, of the taking the militant action. I mean, of course, like, as, as we said before, like all these things would be good to have, like it would like the passage of something like EFCA, the, the, the uh, card check bill, like that would be ideal. That's the least we could have, you know, we could have structures that, you know, that an NLMB that is much more, uh, uh, pro worker that that uh, there there could be legislation that uh, you know ends at will employment. I mean, there's there's a whole laundry list of things that we could go through, but the only way that we're going to get them is through uh, the the kind of upsurge. That's historically we we didn't really mention this in the piece, but that that's the order. It's militant action to policy fixes or to you know political attention or or whatever. Um, that's the order of operations. So it seems like as well there, once you have the, the militant actions uh, f- with, with the policy fixes that emerge as a response, y- you know, you, you can produce a new a conjuncture wherein it's, it's uh, you know, the, the conditions are even more favorable to continue and enhance, uh, you know, that struggle. At the same time, however, you know, that, that continued struggle and that continued advancement throws up a set of contradictions, you know. For example, when you find yourself gaining traction inside the capitalist state, you oftentimes uh, find yourself with very strange, you know, bedfellows. For example, you know, I don't know, Tom Ferguson has explained the New Deal coalition uh, in, in large part as being comprised by a number of sort of uh, northeastern financiers who were opposed to the dominance and the monopolization of the finance sector by JP Morgan, for example. So, you know, not only did you have this kind of like, uh, you know, labor union uh, collectivity, this labor union block, you had this very strange Dixiecrat, you know, Southern block that comprised the, you know, the Democratic, the Democratic Party, but you also had this anti-Morgan finance block, and and of course that throws up a set of contradictions, as does the integration of the Dixiecrats into this coalition. So you know, looking forward, these lessons are quite crucial and critical. What kind of coalition are we forming today, and and where are the potential contradictions and the fracture, fractures uh, points? You know that that we're going to be uh, uh, facing down in the next five to ten years. Wow, that's a that's a great question. That sounds like a dissertation topic, right there. It, it would not. very well could, it probably should be. If you guys have a better uh, attention span than I do, and you, and you don't need to jump from uh, topic to topic every ten fucking minutes, maybe take that on. But uh, take take a crack at that. Is I like to ask a big final question. I think this is as big as you can get. What do you what do you make of this? Yeah, I oh, I have <laughs> I, I hate that to be the last question because I have no clue. I have not thought about that. But really, it is the kind of a central question for us to wrestle with i mean uh yeah because you know that's 
many people made this point, right? That like social change happens when you're able to either affect or to take advantage of fractures within the ruling class uh, coalition. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. Let, let me let me let me nail it down more explicitly because this is kind of where my head is at at the moment. I don't have certainly don't have any answers, but it seems to me that we're not going to get anywhere without a large swath of you know this kind of wishy washy progressive segment of of, of society. And you know, I, I count the Matty Glaciers among those. Uh, you can, kind of count these, you know, white collar progressive, you know, uh, sympathetic types who uh, will go along with Bernie Sanders uh, because he seems like he, he has a positive you know, view for humanity, uh, which is an easy case to make in, in, the, in the Trump era, right? Uh, these, these monsters who, who have a very dim view of our prospects and our future. What are going to, what, I mean, there are inevitably going to be some class uh, rifts that open up in the course of, of this militant minority you know, in, increasing the stakes and making the material foundations of these wishy-washy progressives uh, uh, more and more unstable as the years go on. Yeah. So if you're talking about the, what the left coalition will look like, I think that's definitely true. I mean, just to your the point of what you're talking about, sort of upper middle class liberal types, we have an, art, an article by Liza Featherstone in the new issue of Jacobin, where she talks about how un, un, uh, you know, unstable of a, of a coalition partner that sort of upper middle class liberals will be, uh, if for no other reason than that Bernie Sanders will threaten their material uh, well-being at some point. Like we, we, we're all about taxing the 1%, but we're eventually probably going to get down to the like well-paid lawyers and doctors, the sort of upper middle class types. Uh, we're we're going to come for you at some point. <laughs> and uh, we can't imagine that they'll want to stick around. Uh, as part of that coalition when we start threatening their material interests. But to the other question of, or the other uh, point about the the broader sort of like wishy-washy liberal, quote unquote progressive. I mean, that of course is central. You know, if, if, if they're not going to be part of the, of a broader left coalition, who, who's going to join us, right? Obviously it's not going to be just DSA members. (laughs) So the hope is to, to win over a large segment of, of that, uh, that population and obviously to win them over as far as we can to uh, at, at the very least a, a kind of broad common sense, you know, a social democratic common sense and, and, a, and a class struggle uh, again, broadly speaking uh, common sense, because if we don't do that, then we won't have an army to really fight these battles with. Right. So let's, let's we'll, we'll hone in on this final question. This is part, part three of the final question and we can kind of bring it home to this. We're going to be transitioning to a B-side for the patrons. We're going to talk explicitly about this Bernie wave, who are the forces inside of it. We're going to talk about some of the potential big wins in Chicago. Uh, there's some big, big things that you yourself have been a part of in Chicago and shifting the balance of forces inside of the political uh, as you know, sphere in terms of the, the way that we're carving this out You know, quite artificially. It's, a, and it's an integrated uh, organic process, but big things in Chicago. That's going to be over on the B-side. But we'll wind up here. What does it look like for this militant minority to go up against the limits of the capitalist state that is run by a Bernie Sanders executive? Well, the hope is that a Bernie Sanders presidency would not just be, it would not just mean a Bernie Sanders presidency. It would mean the stoking of, you know, activity from below that could overcome those limits of the capitalist state that you're referring to. And the signs are pretty good for that 
so far. I mean, you know, I remember the, the, the video that Bernie had that announced his candidacy said, uh, I forget the exact quote, but it's something like change never comes, you know, is never given from above. It has always come from the activity of those from below or something like that. Uh, which, what, what a way to start a presidential announcement video to say that it's actually not really about me winning at the level of above. It's from below. And likewise, you know, he's like, get, you know, and I, at the Chicago rally, for example, he had grassroots organizers from, you know, affordable housing fight for a fight against the expansion of a, a police academy on the Chicago, on Chicago's West side. Obviously the, the recent uh, support for the, uh, the Erie, Pennsylvania UE workers were on strike. You know, the attention to Sarah uh, Nelson, the flight attendants union president who, you know, then Bernie, she, she threatens the strike that helps lead to the end of the shutdown. And then Bernie brings her to the state of the union. And then she's in the New York Times saying like, strike, 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 say it, yeah, strike, yeah. strike, strike. It feels good, doesn't it? Yeah. It's <laughs> almost like Bernie Sanders would have brought, you know, uh, the bones of Hal Draper. Uh, to the yeah, exactly. Movie, if he could have. I mean, <laughs> exactly. my God, this is this is as good as it gets for us people. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, I don't want to look, I don't want to sound like a hack. I've already done the Bernie bro episode with Matt Carp. Got that out of our, got that out of our skins. I'm bending the stick back in the critical direction. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yeah, but, but no, that's, I, it's, it's, well important, it's an important thing to just say about his president, that, that he is not somebody who is saying, I mean, Bhaskar Sankara in the new Jack Benji describes it as class struggle, social democracy. Like it, 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 the, the, it is not him saying, put me in the office. So I'll take care of things for you. He is in the campaigning itself. He is acknowledging the need to stoke these grassroots pressures, these pressures from below that can overcome. I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't go into the whole state theory stuff, but this is basically what you get the sense <laughs> he's getting at. Where's the Palancis, Bernie? Uh, yeah, exactly. Come on, man. I'm arguing against endorsement for for Bernie because he's not yeah. citing. You know, is he a Millibandian or a Palancian? Because I'm not casting my vote until I get a fucking answer, Micah. <laughs> right, but but no, I mean that that is. I mean, it's it's unlike anything we've ever seen before, certainly in the United yeah. States. Or, so, um, you know that that that. You know the, the the potential to stoke these opportunities that a militant minority could take advantage of are clearly here uh, in the in the Bernie Sanders campaign. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Nice way to wrap it up. You know, there are going to be a number of traps and pitfalls and contradictions ahead. But as I say over and over and over again, and I think you know, I started saying this in large part because of the openings and the challenges that were presented to us by the 2016 Bernie wave. These are good fucking problems to have, my friend. Micah Utrecht, thank you so much for coming on uh, Dead Pundit Society. Look forward to chatting with you on the B-side. Yeah, my pleasure. Oh, this you crazy mother...